Love in Paradise is Dr. Joel Hunter's sermon series, and his fourth message is entitled, Not a Gift Alone. From the New American Standard, Dr. Hunter will use the second chapter of Genesis, verses 21 through 25, as a scripture text, and it reads as follows. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place, and the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Like smog clouding the horizon, like sand through the egg timer, like that annoying thing flashing 12 o'clock on your VCR, so flash the days of our lives. Since Jessica collapsed with kidney failure last week, Eric has kept an almost non-stop vigil by her bed. While Eric was out of the room, Jessica's doctor replaced her blood with Folger's instant coffee crystals. But that's not why we're here today. Today we join Eric at Jessica's bedside, waiting for any sign of life from her. Waiting. Oh, God. Waiting. Oh, God. Please. Waiting. Oh, God. Please send her back to me. Lord, I repent of all my foolish pride. Oh, look at her lying there. She's so pushy and abrasive, and yet so perfect for me. <laughs> Don't go to the light, Jessica. What? Who? Hello. I'm Eric Ein Kidney. <laughs> It's German. It means one good kidney. Ein kidney? Ein is a whole number also, Jessica. Oh, Eric, you gave me one of your kidneys, but they were everything to you. No, Jessica, they were an important part of the sum of who I am. And now you have part of the sum of who I was in some way. Yet more because now... Some of me is part of the sum of you. And the sum of our parts is greater than the parts of our sums. What? I don't know, Jessica. I'm weak. I just had a kidney ripped out of my side for crying out loud. I mean, come on, give me a break. Oh, Jessica, I'm so sorry. Forgive me, I... What I'm trying to tell you is that I had a dream. No, not just a dream. I had a mirage. No, not a mirage. What's the word I'm looking for? A vision. Yes, a vision. You are so good for me. I had a vision in which you appeared to me. And Bob was there, too. Bob, what was he doing? Well, 
he was sort of dancing. I don't want to think about that right now, Jessica. What I'm trying to tell you is that I need you in my life. Challenging me. Pushing me to greater heights. Jessica, I love you. Oh, Eric, I... I don't know what to say. Oh, sweet mystery of life. At last I found you. Oh, I know the meaning of your charms. You know, I... I really hate it when you do that. Do what? That horse-like snort and hair spasm tick thing you do. Hair spasm tick thing? It's very unladylike. Well, it's certainly gentlemanly of you to come into a recovering kidney person's room and start nagging them about their personality since you're completely lacking one yourself. Just exactly what are you trying to say? I'm saying that you should have a little more tact and compassion, Eric. Are you asking me to change? No, I'm asking you to leave. Fine. Fine. Oh, Eric, I'm sorry. Please, please forgive me. Don't ever leave me again. Never, never, my love. I'll always be by your side. I've got to keep an eye on my kidney, after all. Oh, darling, I love you. Oh, Jessica. Oh, Eric. Oh, Jessica. Oh, Eric. Oh, boy, this is exhausting. Your kidney? No, this relationship thing is just so tiring. You do look a bit haggard. Haggard? What is that supposed to mean? It means tired, Eric. Look it up. Don't, don't take that tone of voice with me. Get out! You get out! All right, I will. Oh, 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 the pain. Jessica, the pain? Where is it? It's in my neck. It's called Eric. That's actually pretty funny. A pain in the neck. My woman has a sense of humor. Pretty good. <laughs> I can't stand the way you snort. I can't stand the way you do anything. Marry me. Oh, Eric. I can't. What? Eric, there's something I need to tell you. What is Jessica's terrible secret? Who is the mysterious orderly? Will Eric and Jessica marry? Will Susan's hair grow back in? Who is Susan anyway? Tune in next week to question the questions on the days of our lives. Well, believe it or not, what you just heard has a biblical corollary, and if you will turn... <laughs> we can connect anything around here. <laughs> Turn to Genesis chapter 2. We want to explain this week, uh, as we go on to talk about how God builds relationships, we want to explain the biblical or the, the physical component of a relationship. Seen in this creation of Eve, there is a very pronounced example and metaphor for what a relationship costs us physically.
If you will read with me, beginning with verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, Now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Very physical language. Now, we want to talk about two of the physical aspects today specifically that were symbolized in this skit. But first of all, let me just give you a little bit of time to think about the physical aspect of what a relationship costs you. Most of us don't think about this very often. Those of you who are mothers know very well what a physical experience that is. To, be, to give life, to, to have a love of someone who has been literally born out of your body, out of your flesh. But there's more to that than just having that one-time physical experience because loving those kids is an exhausting physical experience for the rest of your lives. Some of you had dads, some of you are dads, who worked two, three jobs just to put food on the table and came home absolutely exhausted every night. Some of you worked jobs that, that you never would have worked as a single person. You just wouldn't have done it. It was too, too stressful or too routine or too boring. But because you had a family, you worked that job. And you gave what was the physical price of love. There are many ways you can see this. Some of you were big brothers and stepped in when somebody was bullying your little siblings and you paid a physical price for that. That was a physical price of love. Some of you have big sisters, as I did, who must have thousands of times physically restrained herself from strangling me to death because I was so obnoxious. That's a physical cost of love. Some of you are friends, and you have sat up all night with a, another friend who had a problem, and you've had to go to work the next day, and you have felt the cost physically of that love. Some of you have gone to people to sit with them, and they had a contagious disease, and you surrendered your own safety in order to be physically with them as a physical cost of love. God intended for us to be physical with our love. It's a great part of who we are and how he made us. And a great part of recognizing that God wants us to be present with one another, to be available physically for one another, is knowing and recognizing that that other person is like us. When Adam looked at Eve, there was no mistaking her from the rest of the animals. He didn't even hesitate. He said, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. There is a great similarity here. We are alike. And so therefore, they were together physically. They were present with each other. Can I tell you how much ministry comes from just being together physically? Do you know what? <clears throat> if, you, if you're taking notes, write this down. 80% of ministry is just showing up. 
80% of ministry is just showing up. Getting your body there. Last night after the message, we had, uh, we had the discussion that we always have. and We just asked, opened the floor and said, does anybody have an example of physical ministry, ministry that's meant something to them or they were able to give to another person? And I wish you could have heard the testimony. One testimony after another of people saying, you know, when I was sick, this person came to be with me and just held my hand. It was awful. They, we didn't say anything. They just held my hand. There was a person who had been in a nursing home that day. And that day, and he said, you know, I, I don't have anything to say to them. They know more than I do. They've lived longer than I have. But just to be with them, just to hug them, just to, just to be in their roots, it was a wonderful experience. There was a, a single gal who knew of a young three-year-old girl who God had providentially put within her sphere of influence who was being abused. The mother was needing help and, and needing to exit the scene and get treatment. And, and this woman said, I just felt like God was saying, take her in. Physically, take her in. And so for three years, this woman, while she has gone to school, has raised this little girl, pouring her life into this little girl. And now her mother looks like there's significant progress and looks like, you know, she'll be able to have the little girl back. And now this little girl is being ripped from this this other lady's life. There's a physical price to be paid. I mean, it's it's an actual emotional inhabitation of your body that goes. So it's important to understand that just being there is everything. And it's important to understand that it's very important for us to see one another as similar so that we will be there. You know, one of the reasons that we discount one another, one of the reasons we, disca- we categorize one another is so that we can discount one another and detach from one another. Similarity is kind of the Velcro of life. Have you ever noticed that? You find, you find somebody you have something in common with and pfft, you're together. I mean, that's it. You're, you're attached. And so one of the reasons that we continue to dehumanize other people is so that we can be released from the responsibility of hanging around them. The only way war can prosper is for a whole new language to come in and dehumanize the other side. Have you ever noticed the language of a war? It's never, we're fighting the German people. It's always, they're the enemy or the Krauts. You know, or the Japanese people are the Japs. When we were in Vietnam, it wasn't the Vietnamese people, it was the gooks and the slopeheads. You have to dehumanize those people somehow in order to constantly stay away from them and to attack them. The same thing happens, the only way abortion can, can uh, prosper in this country is to not call the baby the baby. You've got to call it a fetus or a mass of tissue or some other way, some way that you can become detached and not take responsibility physically to minister to that person. The way that prejudice continues is by renaming people. Black people aren't people, they're niggers, and white people aren't white, they're honkies, and, and policemen aren't policemen, they're pigs, and, and on down the line. And Christians, I want to warn you about this. I hear Christians doing exactly the same thing because we will dehumanize someone whom we see in a lifestyle of sin. Homosexuals are no longer homosexual people, they're fags. And it's just as wrong when it applies to 
a behavior that is anti-scriptural as when it applies to something that is the color of a skin or the ethnic variety of a race is just as wrong. Because God put us here to see us in our similarity. One of the things that bothers me about the multicultural uh, education is that we emphasize differences more than we emphasize likenesses and they separate us from one another. And God wants us together. He wants us together physically. Why was it that, that the Samaritan couldn't walk around the guy in the road? The guy who was outcast, the guy who was helpless, the guy who had, who had nothing going for him. Why was it that the priest and the Levite could avoid him? Because they couldn't identify with him. Because they'd been respected in their life. They, had, they were people of, of great stature. But get a Samaritan walking along, a Samaritan who is an outcast from the Jews, a Samaritan who is looked down upon from the Jews. And he can't get around that guy laying in the road who is outcast and looked down upon by everybody else. Why? Because he's like him. And when you're like somebody, when you see that they're a person like you're a person, then there's some responsibility to be present, to be with them. One of the things that we heard last night of, of just absolute ministry was the, the different examples of, of, of presence and so on and so forth. And one of the stories I remember from ministry, and, and I say this because we believe that in order to really minister to one another here, we have to have some sort of answer for one another. Could I relieve you of that great burden? Most of us don't have any answers, let alone helpful answers to the real problems of life. Let me just say to you that that unless the Holy Spirit comes and gives you the words, which He will do from time to time, you're not expected to have answers. But one, And so we were talking about how important just being with each other was physically, you know, uh, donating our presence, you know. Um, and I remember a story. Uh, young gal watched her husband drop dead pitching a church softball league team, um, had a heart attack, 26 years old, dropped dead on the mound. Years later, I asked her, trying to, you know, see what was helpful to her. I said, what, do you remember what people said to you? Things that really helped, things that got you through that grief. And she said, you know, I cannot remember one thing anyone said to me. You know what I do remember? I remember the people that came up to me and just put their arms around me and just held me. She said, I felt like they were literally keeping me from falling apart. There is ministry in presence. You parents, listen. Don't ever think that you're going to do more for your kids by going out and earning 50 bucks than you are in setting in a bleacher's and watching even the most boring t-ball games in the history of mankind. Because when you are there physically and that kid can see you, you have just ministered to that kid beyond whatever you could say to him. It doesn't matter if you come up with the right stuff to say if he loses. It doesn't matter if you advise him when he wins. What matters is you're there. Showing up is 80% of ministry. 
But there's something even more to this passage, more subtle. Let me, let me share it with you. And it has to do with a more subtle form of our physical interchange with one another, an aspect of behavior that has to do with speech. Look at what it says in verse 19. It says, Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. Now let me tell you right now what is happening in the original language, what the, the, the picture, the word picture that is happening. Adam's not just sitting there going, aardvark, buffalo, so on and so forth. Adam is literally not only knowing these animals well enough that he can name their nature, but he is calling out to them to see if there's a response. In other words, he's looking for someone who will call back. He's looking for someone who, in the, in the language of the Bible, will be his corresponding one, or the one who answers back. And so, therefore, the type of physical relationship, the type of coming together involves the most important and powerful member, according to the Bible, James 3, of our whole body, the tongue. It has to do with how we talk to one another and whether or not we talk to one another. It has to do with the physical price of having a conversation. <laughs> Eric was exhausted. But they continued to have this conversation even though it wasn't going very well, even though there was misunderstandings. Physical conversation is exhausting. But God brings us into that conversation even though he has wired us very differently as men and women. And even though we have friends who are wired very differently than us, God wants us to have that kind of relationship. Now, ask yourself this. Why? Would God make Adam and Eve very different? Why wouldn't he make them agree all the time? As a matter of fact, why did he make a woman at all? I mean, he could have found another way for us to reproduce. Why didn't he just clone Adam? Well, I, I believe I've got the answer with an old saying. You've heard the saying, if two people always agree, one of them is unnecessary. Have you not? The reason that God made... Eve, so very different from Adam, wired differently than Adam, was because Adam needed what she had to say that was different in order to grow, in order to change, in order to improve. Walter Lippmann was a tremendous uh, political philosopher in the earlier part of this century. And one time when he was defending the right of free speech, for those who disagreed with him, he said this, We don't need just to defend the right of our opponents to disagree with us verbally so that we might have the same right. We need to defend their right to disagree with us because, listen to this, we need to hear what they have to say. You understand that? We need our opponents because we need to hear what they have to say. When God built Eve as one who was opposite to him, he wasn't saying in opposition to him, not against him, contrary, not contradictory. 
complementary, not conflicting, but someone who was different. Because Adam needed to hear what she had to say and how she had to think. Now, I know that's unpleasant. All of us, because of our pride, love to be agreed with, and all of us hate to be disagreed with. But the piercing that comes, comes only to our ego. It is a, uh, an unpleasant kind of piercing, um, but I would not emphasize that unpleasantness too much because God meant it to be a harmony, not to be continually unpleasant. Now, I've got to watch myself here because last night I gave a, a, uh, an example of, a, uh, of how you know, we just need to go through the unpleasant aspects of, of our relationships, no matter who they're with and, and how they can be rather irritating, but that you, know, you just get through those things. And so I said, uh, and this is a true story, there's, an, there's a tribe in the Amazon um, that tests a man to see if he's ready for marriage. Uh, the, the day that he is to marry, they will take him and they will tie his hand in a bag full of fire ants. And if the man can sit there smiling and seeming to be undisturbed, he's ready for marriage. (laughs) Now, I I know there must be a test for the woman. I just don't know what it is. She probably has to go out in the woods and try to get a rock to feel or a tree stump to think or something like that. Sorry. <laughs> Had to give equal time. But this is the point. This is the point. The point is that in doing that, I was emphasizing the irritation. Now, I went back to my office afterwards, and Becky was in the service last night, and I said, well, Becky, you know, how can I improve the sermon? And, and Becky looked at me and said, well, Hunter, he sa- she said, I, I, I may just be too sensitive or may have taken this too personally, but... but She said, I don't really like to be compared with a bag of fire ants on your hand. (laughs) And and after a half an hour of this, oh, I didn't mean us, my sweet, I didn't mean... (laughs) I grovel very well. But God, you see why God put us together, because... Because men think in terms of abstract. I was thinking, oh, what a good comparison. You know, it's, it's irritating, but it's not deathly. But, but, you know, it's something that you get over. And, you know, it's just you go on with the relationship. And I was thinking totally in abstract. And Becky just reminded me, hey, there's people on the other end of this analogy. There's a person there. And there are people who will take this personally. I need that. I never get to that level of thinking without her. I need her. And, and you women who think in detail... Um, um, you may also have to watch yourself in how you can control your tongue physically when you talk to a man because, because men need to be let down easy. They, they do. <laughs> Beck and I were at, a, at, at an RTS uh, seminary thing the other, the other night talking to ministers' wives, and we were talking about what it was like to be in ministry for 20-some years together. And, and afterwards, there was, a, there was a question and answer period, and this one gal raised her hand and said, How can I keep from crushing my my husband's dreams? And we said, you know, what's up? She says, well, he comes back with these huge visions, you know. And I'm thinking to myself, man, this isn't going to work for this reason, this reason, and this reason. And I just tell him, just crushes him, you know. Now, that's a good question. You know why? Because men are idealists, believe it or not. Many men are idealists. They don't think things through. And when women are just trying to help, they're just trying to say, 
How are you going to do that? And, and men will go, well, I don't know. Is it, we'll, just, we'll just do it. Don't, I mean, don't, come on, don't bring me down on this thing. I, have, I can't tell you how many men I've had over the years go, man, my wife just throws cold water on everything. You know? And it's because the woman hasn't thought through. She's thought through the details, but hasn't thought through the fact, I'm dealing with an idealist here. I'm dealing with a guy with big dreams. I've got to... Now, here's the, here's the second point. I want you to write this down. I want you to write it down in your heart if you can't write it down, uh, or write it down in your head if you can't write it down in your notes. The physical price of love, the physical price of having a relationship, when it comes to conversation, has to do with this. Controlling our tongue until our language cannot only help solve the problem, it can also help build the relationship. Let me say that again. Let me say it in the form of a vow. As far as I know, I will control my tongue until I can discipline my language to not only help solve a problem, but to help build the relationship. Now, what does all this have to do with communion? It has everything to do with communion. You know that all relationships are apprenticeships toward God. God is a God of relationships. And there were two prices that he had to pay. One, he had to pay the price of similarity. That's what what incarnation is. God coming down and being with us so so that we could no longer disregard him or detach from him. We don't have some spiritual God that we're going to face someday in the sky. We've got one who walked the earth and still walks the earth in the Holy Spirit. Emily Dickinson said, who fails to find heaven below will fail of it above. God's residence is next to me. His furniture is love. That's exactly what God was saying to us when He came down in the form of Christ. I establish my relationship with you on the basis of similarity. He became as a man. But the second price is even more exacting because it is the price of our opposition to Him, our difference to Him. And that is a price that only He could pay. You see, it's not a gift alone. Somebody's got to pay the price. It wasn't us who could pay it. It was only God who could pay it. And that was the cost of that physical life. I got a letter this week. Many of you have written me this week telling me what God's doing in your life. What an encouragement that is. What I am so glad God is moving as He is. But one of the letters said this. He summed it up better than I ever could. He said, you know, it was about three weeks ago and I was sitting in church and I realized really for the first time that even though my salvation was a free gift to me, It was very costly to God. And then he wrote this. He said, That breaks my heart and mends it. And mends it. Let's go to the table. God, thank you for paying the price physically to love us. And as we come to this table, O God, we pray 
that you will let us see you as our example who became similar to us but also sacrificed physically that we could be loved by you. God, help us to look at you and have our hearts broken and mended at the same time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would the communion servers please come forward? As they come forward, let me remind you that this is the Lord's table. Therefore, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, please feel free to partake of the elements. The Bible also says, though, not to partake in an unworthy manner. Therefore, if you've not received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, just don't be embarrassed to let the elements pass you by. Or, if you are a Christian, but for some reason you have some reluctance, taking communion right now would be in an unworthy manner. Let the elements pass you by. There's no cause for embarrassment or no reason for embarrassment here. Um, Let me uh, pray for us the prayer of humble access. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to partake of this sacrament of thy Son, Jesus Christ, that we may walk in newness of life and may grow into his likeness and may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Amen.